question I want to pose to you today, and perhaps next week, and the one we're going to be discussing is, how can God bring a sinful people into cooperation with the divine order? How can God bring sinful humanity into alignment with his will? Well, he gave, he gave people a law, and the law, did, although it facilitated obedience, it could not give them the power, the ability to obey God's will. It just laid out God's will before them. And last week we saw that God has accomplished what the law could not do through Jesus Christ. So that's the context that we're entering into today. So I'm going to start, I'm going to read Romans 8, 1 through 13. And I, we covered 1 through 4 last week, but just for context, I'm going to read those few verses. Now keep in mind the question, how can humans be brought into cooperation with God's purposes and will? Romans 8, 1 through 13 is the answer. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind in the flesh is death, but to set the mind in the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's will, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This passage compares the flesh with the Spirit. And it shows that human instincts and passions and tendencies and proclivities, those things that come naturally to us are not the avenues they are not the avenues through which we are going to be brought into alignment with God's purposes. So you have passions that rise up in you naturally. You have fleshly passions, fleshly instincts and desires, fleshly thoughts and burdens. 
those are not the means through which we are bought, brought into cooperation with God's order. And that is what Romans 8 is teaching us right here. Essentially, what we're, we're getting at today is the flesh is these, the flesh, that is the umbrella term for, for everything that the flesh, everything that your natural self is. From desires to thoughts to tendencies, all of that, the flesh is incapable of and opposes what God's will is. It is incapable of doing and opposes what God's will is. The Spirit, however, enables you to understand and obey God's will fully. So this is the flesh versus Spirit. And we are all in this battle, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, you are in this battle. Because while you have the Holy Spirit within you, you are also still of the flesh. You're not in the realm of the flesh in the sense that it dominates you, but you're in the, you're still have, you still have a fleshly body, a fallen nature. That will be redeemed one day, but until then, there is war between the flesh and the spirit. And you can make progress in that area. So I want to give a little primer on the Holy Spirit briefly, because when we talk about the Holy Spirit, I've heard many people refer to the Holy Spirit as an it, or not exactly know the Spirit as kind of the fun personality of God, or uh, there's such confusion about the Holy Spirit. So I just want to give a brief primer on the Holy Spirit. I, I mean real brief. A three-point primer on the Holy Spirit that sets up the context for this passage, at least. So number one, did you know it's to our advantage that Jesus is not here right now? Did you know that? Jesus said in Romans 16, or Romans, in John 16, verse 7, to the disciples, he says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now, that's an odd thing to say. How would it be to our advantage that God with us goes away? How's that good? He explains. For if I do not go away, the helper, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. So, even greater than God being with us is God being in us. And that's what the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is God in you, mediating the presence and power of Christ in you according to the will of God. Number two, that's a good thing because the Holy Spirit communicates to you God's will. And this is exactly what the prophets have been saying in the scriptures for thousands of years, that God would eventually take a sinful people and put his spirit into them and write his law into their hearts so that they, it flows out of them, his will now. Here's Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27. God's promise to Israel, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh 
and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So this promise from God is that he is going to give you his own spirit. He's going to inscribe his will onto your heart through that spirit, which causes you to obey his statutes and carefully observe his rules. Amazingly enough, what you have in Romans 8 verse 4 is the enablement of the Holy Spirit to obey what the righteous requirement of the law always required of you. The Holy Spirit takes those eternal principles that are embodied in the 613 commandments of the law and he applies them to your heart. Get some feedback here. So, those eternal principles embodied in the law are now written onto your heart. You're still getting some feedback. All right, testing, testing, one, two, three. All right. So, how's that? Can you hear me? All right. So, number one, Jesus sends us the Holy Spirit. Number two, the Holy Spirit communicates God's will to us. Um, and this was promised in the prophets, and the Holy Spirit enables us to live according to those eternal principles embodied in the law. That's a quick primer on the Holy Spirit. It's far too quick, but what I'd like to get across to you is that God's new covenant promises a change from within. All right, so you are changed from the inside out. And now in this new age, so think of Moishi sitting in the in the, the synagogue, learning about Christ now. In this new age, what he needs to understand is that what counts before God is not race. It's not Jew or Gentile. It's not, it's not social standing. It's not slave or free. It's not rich or poor. Those are not symbolic capital in God's economy. What counts is Christ and the Spirit, and then there, is, there are those in the flesh. You either have Christ in the spirit or you are in the flesh. Those are the two categories. There is no more Jew or Greek, slave or free, bond. Those things are all wiped away. And now what counts in this new covenant age is whether one has the spirit through Christ or whether one does not have the spirit. So with that in mind, let's look at Romans 8, verse 5. And now in 5 and 6, Paul is contrasting those who belong to the flesh with those who belong to the Spirit. There are those people. I trust that all of us here today belong to the Spirit. But there are people who belong to the flesh. And so... The first, there's two contrasts in, in verse 5 and verse 6. I want you to see this. The contrast in verse 5 is about what determines the way a person thinks and acts. So, verse 5, the Apostle Paul writes, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And those who live according to the Spirit set their minds onto the things of the Spirit. Now, this is not an exhortation. 
All right, verse 5 is not saying what you should do yet. There's an implicit exhortation, but properly speaking, this is not something you should do. Paul is just describing reality right now. He's, he's, he is describing what is, what is true of people in the flesh and what is true of people who are in the spirit. In the Greek, my version, the ESV, says those who live according to the flesh. And it bewilders me that, that literal translations continue to put words in that aren't there. Because in the Greek, the word live is not present. It literally reads, those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And those who are according to the spirit set their minds on the things. So Paul is talking about belonging. The realm, the sphere in which you belong to, that's what Paul is talking about here. So those who belong in the sphere of the flesh, they set their mind on the flesh. Those who belong on, in the sphere of the Holy Spirit, they set their mind on the spirit. So this is a description of reality. So birds fly in the air, right? Fish swim in the sea. Those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the flesh. Those who live according to the spirit set their mind on the things of the spirit. So what is the mode of operation for a person's life? That's what Paul's talking about. And what's the difference between the two? The difference lies in where they set their minds. Please understand this. This is very important. It's where you set your mind. Those who are in the flesh, those who are of the flesh, they set their mind on the things of the flesh. When you set your mind on something, you are bringing it into conformity with that thing. So if I, if I set crack an egg and I set it on a pan, on one of, you've seen these egg circles that you can put the circle down, you can crack an egg, put it in the circle, and it will take the shape, the egg will take the shape of that circle. I want to get one of those because it, it comes out, the egg will come out perfectly shaped according to what the shape is that you're putting it in. That's, precise, that's the image I'm getting here. So you set, you're not setting an egg on a, on a plate, but you're setting your mind onto something. You're bringing your mind into conformity with the things of the flesh. So that's what, to set one's mind on something. So if you set your mind on the things of the flesh, you are bringing your mind into conformity with your weak, natural instincts, thoughts, tendencies, proclivities, anxieties. That's setting your mind on the flesh. So you're bringing your mind into conformity with those things. You're bringing yourself into conformity with those things. Now, those who are of the flesh make natural thoughts the base of their operations, and their life follows suit. So, when met with a decision, those who are of according to the those who are according to the flesh will probably ask themselves, "What do you want? What do I want? Or what do I feel like?" And their whole life will follow suit based on that question. Because the flesh is their, their base of operations. Now those who are of the Spirit, though, what do they do? Why, those who are of the Spirit bring their minds into conformity with the Holy Spirit. So rather, 
rather than bringing their mind into conformity with their natural instincts, their weaknesses, their anxieties, they bring their mind into, into service of the Holy Spirit and submit to God's will. So here's an example. I've given this before, and I think this is from Dallas Willard. You bring your mind into conformity with the flesh, into conformity with the spirit, rather, when someone curses you and you make your tongue bless them. That's when your tongue is brought into conformity with the spirit. You make the tongue bless those who curse you. That's how you bring something into conformity with the spirit. To bring it into conformity with the flesh is, well, that person cursed me. I'm mad. I'm, I'm angry about that. And I'm going to come right back at him. That's bringing it into conformity with the flesh. So you bring your mind into conformity with the spirit, for example, when you make your tongue bless those who curse you. So, to set the mind in the flesh is to bring yourself into conformity with, with what comes natural to you. The mind set on the flesh uh, is anxiety, it is anger, it is peacelessness, it is passion-filled, it is subjective. There's no higher plane of reasoning than the self. Hopefully I can put this here now. Now, can you still hear me good? Okay. okay. Now, what is the result? Now, I just hinted at this, but what's the result of living in the flesh versus living in the spirit? Verse 6 tells you. Verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So to set the mind is death, meaning it's actual death. It's not, not just physical death, but I mean eternal death. Why is that? Because you're attaching yourself to the things that God's going to destroy in the future. That to set the mind on the flesh means that one is attaching themselves to the very things that brings the wrath of God. Colossians 3, 5 through 6. Paul talks about putting to death what is earthly among you. And he gives the example, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So once you set your mind on those things, you attach yourself to the very things that bring the wrath of God. It is through the indulgence of the flesh that we have child sex trafficking, is it not? God's angry at that. So to set your mind to cooperate with those kinds of things is to set your mind on the very things that God is destroying, thus resulting in death for you. But it's not only, it's not only actual death in the future, it's existential death right now. And I'll give you one example, because to set your mind on the flesh, the flesh never says enough. It will never have enough from you. It's always going to give. It's always going to take from you. Perhaps I've read you this quote before too, but 
atheist um, author, David Foster Wallace, gave an address at a graduation, and I forget which college it was, but he, he said something so interesting in this address. He said, he talked about investing your life in things in terms of worship, which sounds so biblical to me. And David Foster Wallace, in his address, addressed these graduating students, and he said the following. He said, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they plant you. If you worship power, you will always feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will always end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out, and so on. The flesh never says, all right, you have enough. It is a, it is a consuming fire, and it's coming after your soul. It's coming after you. So to set the mind on the things of the flesh, yes, it is actual death because it brings the wrath of God, but it is existential and emotional death because it constantly takes from you. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. It is actual peace because you're producing the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And the Father is satisfied with such things. And you are glorifying God because of such things. But it is also existential life and peace. Because instead of being overwhelmed with anxiety, I'm trusting God's provision. Instead of submitting to my turbulent feelings and my heart, which constantly wants to throw me to and fro, it approaches God in faith. In trust. And this is why Jesus said in John, oh, Isaiah said, You keep him in perfect peace, him whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. The reason the person is in, the person is in perfect peace is because he trusts in the Lord, he casts his anxieties on the Lord. All right, so to set the mind in the flesh, that's death. To set the mind in the spirit, that's life and peace. Actually, objectively, and subjectively. Now, why is it? Why is it that the mind set on the flesh is death? Why is that? Paul gives more reasons here. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So, there are 
there are a few reasons here why it brings death, why setting the mind and the flesh brings death. Number one, because it's hostile to God's purposes. If you bring your mind into conformity with your natural passions or way of seeing the world, that's not the way to bring yourself into cooperation with God. That's the way to bring yourself into hostility. To God. It's to live in opposition to God's will. That's not the avenue through which you follow God by asking yourself, what do I want or how do I feel? It brings opposition to God's will. Verse 8, because it cannot please God, because it's unable to please God. So in verse 8, Paul's talking about the inability of the flesh to produce God's will. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's not that they don't please God. But those who are in the sphere of the flesh don't even have the capacity to please God. Their passions, their instincts, their desires of the natural person do not bring that person into cooperation with the divine order or the life of God. That's why Jesus says, the spirit gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Now, there's a new, a new book out on my book list, Amazon book list. Um, it's called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. Or no, The, the Rise and Triumph of the, of the Modern Self. The Triumph of the Therapeutic was a book in the 50s. It's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And I've listened to a few interviews from him, uh, the author of this book, and he has some penetrating insight into our culture today. I don't, I don't say this with, with some kind of political bent or anything, but this is just obvious living according to the flesh. And it's so sad in our culture that our culture has made it a point to celebrate setting the mind on the flesh and then parading it as freedom. Our culture has, made it, has majored on that has majored on setting the mind on the flesh and casting it in terms of liberty and freedom. So in The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, this author traces cultural moments that led to this problem. And he says, first of all, in the 1500s, everyone knew that they were created for the glory of God in his image. And the way you fulfilled your purpose in life was to live for the glory of God. That's how you fulfilled your purpose. And then he said, what happened after that is then your identity was taken from that realm, and then identity was psychologized, so that your identity is no more given to you from God, but it's something that comes from within. So identity was psychologized. It's how do I feel? What do I want? What comes out of me naturally? And then, in the last few decades, psychology has been sexualized. And that has happened with Freud, where your identity is now rooted, not only in how you want, think, or feel, but it's now rooted in your sexuality. So identity is taken from God, put in the human person, 
and then changed into sexuality. You see the changes that have, have occurred in the past few hundred years? Uh, one author reviewing his book put it like this. The current zenith in the sexual revolution, whose anthropology, whose, whose theory of mankind, ties human dignity and personhood to one's own ability to live unencumbered from any tradition or moral restraint that would limit the fulfillment of desire or will. <laughs> that, is, that is exactly what I'm seeing today. That the theory of the human self is to, or, or the zenith of humanity, is to live unencumbered from any moral restraint that would limit the fulfillment of one's desire or will. Listen, that's not the avenue to pleasing God. That's not the avenue to participating in God's life and bringing yourself into cooperation with God's kingdom. That's not the way. So how, how is a person then brought into alignment with God's life and his will? Answer, it's not the flesh. It's not by setting your mind on what comes out of you. It's by setting your mind not on something natural to you. It's, not, it's setting your mind on something very unnatural, unnatural to you. Something supernatural to you. It's by setting your mind on the Holy Spirit. And so in verses 9 through 11, Paul talks about what the Holy Spirit is doing for, in, and with you right now. In contrast to those who are in the flesh. You, however, Christian, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead is in you, he will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Three truths here, briefly. Number one, Christian, you're in the spirit. You're not in the flesh. That means you're not enslaved to your subjectivity. You're, those natural instincts inclinations, anxieties, passions, you're not enslaved to them. I feel like we're preaching this a lot, but we are in Romans, and that's what it's about. So you're just not enslaved to sin anymore. You're not enslaved to the flesh. You're free from anxieties and passions. So you, however, you're not in the realm where flesh is your master, but you are in the realm where you are guided by the Spirit. Now, Paul says, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. So, to be a Christian, hear me solemnly tell you, is by definition to have the Holy Spirit within you. I, I've, I've come across some groups of Christians who believe that one does not have the Holy Spirit when they're saved, but they need to seek the Holy Spirit after they're saved. I, that is, that's just 
so incorrect and so in unhelpful. Um, and, and it changes the goal of the Christian life, really. It changes the goal of the Christian life from pursuing some kind of second experience slash work. And no one tells you how to get that. But pursuing this thing rather than pursuing Christ-likeness through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, I solemnly charge you to not think you need to seek another, another um, payment from the Holy Spirit somehow. You can seek times of refreshing and consolation from the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is there as a helper, a comforter, and somebody who produces Christ-like in, Christ-likeness in you. So the Holy Spirit, I, I, I would be, feel comfortable saying the Holy Spirit is like the DNA of Christ in you if it were not for the fact that the Holy Spirit is himself a person of the Holy Trinity. So, you're in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. You have the life and vitality of Christ in you. It's the Spirit of Christ who dwells in you. The Holy Spirit mediating the presence and power of Christ to you. Second, verse 10. It's the Spirit who gives you life which is basically what I've been saying. But if, it's, if Christ is in you through the Holy Spirit, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness, meaning the Spirit gives you life because of the saving activity of God. That's his plan of redemption, to put his Spirit in a sinful people and write his laws on their heart. Now, if the Spirit's in you, There's no sin and there's no struggle that you cannot overcome. You can can overcome these things. When I wake up melancholy-like, when I wake up slightly downcast, that's not the Holy Spirit producing that in me, number one. Number two, I can preach to my soul. And I can, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Seek consolation, comfort, and joy in Christ, in God the Father. So, here's what I mean. Jesus Christ was dead, right? He was in the grave. But the Holy Spirit, the power of the indestructible life within him, raised him up. Verse 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul has an eye on two things here. Your future bodily resurrection and the fact that nothing is impossible for the Christian. He will give life to your mortal bodies. So you say, well, maybe you just don't understand what I'm dealing with right now. Yes, but Christ was dead, and the Spirit raised him up. So, the flesh takes life. Understand, the flesh takes life, but the Spirit gives life to you. It's the Spirit who assimilates you into the life and order of God, not the natural instincts 
desires, passions, anxieties, those don't assimilate you into the life and will of God. In fact, they're hostility to God. Now, I'm going to have to save the next few pages here I have for next week. But um, let me, let me, boy, I do have a lot of pages there. But let me, um, let me close with just putting a bow on what we've talked about. We were talking about God's redemptive activity in Romans 8, 1 through 11. So God takes a sinful people who could not follow law, puts his spirit in them, and now gives them the ability to do what the law has required all along. And now Paul compares there are spiritual people who are in the realm of the spirit, and there are fleshly people in the realm of the flesh. The people characterized by the flesh, they bring their minds into conformity with their passions or desires or anxieties. The people, the spirit people, they bring their passions, their mind to conformity with the Holy Spirit. So it's, this has been about the inability of the flesh to bring you into cooperation with God's will. Do not be deceived then, Christian. Do not be deceived by cultural commentators, by social media, by, by the constant advertising, which, which, which would make you think that the height of human experience is to get what you want. Do not be deceived. The human way of seeing the world and the natural passions and those mortal instincts within you, they profit nothing. They're death, and they will constantly take from you. But the Spirit gives life, life and peace to you. So my challenge for you today is cast your cares on him because he cares for you. There's a higher plane of reasoning for the Christian. It's not just what do I want, what do I feel. Animals do that, right? That's an animalistic way of living. But the higher plane of reasoning for the Christian and the ability is to assess what my heart is producing. And through God's grace, I am able, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to judge whether that be pleasing to God and in alignment with why I was created or in opposition to God's will. You can do this to the Holy Spirit. Now, next week, I'm going to up the ante a little bit on this. And I'm going to tell you that if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's what we're going to get to next week. So let's, let's for the time being, understand that there are those who are the flesh and those according to the Spirit. Let's close in a word of prayer.